Well, this morning we're back in our David series where we've been talking about an ordinary man who became an extraordinary king. And we're going to be in first, or rather, 2 Samuel chapters 3 to 4. Uh, if you're just joining us, I want to catch you up to speed a little bit. Uh, so the story of David's life actually begins with the story of Saul, a, a king who was anointed uh, by Samuel to be the king of Israel, the king that would go and fight for his people. Uh, but he disobeyed God and quickly uh, f- fell into uh, a life of disobedience. And so God rejected him as king. And in 1 Samuel 16, what we find is, is that Samuel was sent to actually anoint David as the king of Israel. And he received the spirit, the spirit departed from Saul, and he becomes the man, except for the fact in the very next chapter, we find him going and fighting and defeating the giant Goliath for the people of Israel. And the women, they sang about the greatness of David and the greatness of um, Saul. You'll remember Saul is the one who killed his thousands. Oh, and they should have stopped there, but they continued and they said, and David has killed his tens of thousands. And it was really from that point forward that we find for the next three decades, David is running for his life from Saul to the very end of 1 Samuel. When you pick up in 2 Samuel, what we discover is, is that it is transitioning into the reign of David. And it is a chaotic situation. In fact, you probably noticed that as you read uh, and listened to uh, being read 2 Samuel 3 to 4. Uh, you're probably reading that and going, man, this sounds like a mess. Is there really anything for us in this, but I don't believe God wastes words. I believe he has something important for us here. So as we think about this, we know that there's a transition that's happening. David in the first chapter of 2 Samuel is mourning and grieving the death of Saul and Jonathan, his dearest friend. Now David doesn't immediately take the throne of all of Israel because of the chaos that is everywhere. Men are seeking to take or use the throne for personal interest rather than God's glory. Now, I know that we have some people here who work in politics. And so as you're reading 2 Samuel 3 to 4, you might sound, say, this sounds like a normal day at the office. I mean, this is the kind of chaos that I see uh, every day. People looking to pursue their selfish, their selfish interest over the interest of others. And that's exactly what's happening in the days of David. Now, Saul's chief commander... I want to introduce you to some main characters that you need to know as we move through the story. Saul's chief commander was Abner. And Abner is the guy that I think would call himself the king maker. A mighty warrior who, if he put his stamp on you, you were going to lead and people were going to follow. He was the power behind the crown. And he rejected in 2 Samuel 2 David as king when Saul died. Instead, he put Ishbosheth in power over Israel. Now, Ishbosheth, his, his name seems to mean something like um, man of Baal or man of shame. Uh, but as you follow him and as you look at him, what you're going to see in this brief portrait of him is he is a picture of weakness. He's, he's a coward. He doesn't act. He's passive. Um, if you're thinking about what kind of character does he look like, he looks a lot more like Napoleon Dynamite than Napoleon Bonaparte, right? I mean, this is a guy who is not a stand-up guy. He's not the guy that anybody wants to follow. But what we find here is that David's chief commander, Joab, is a man of war as well. In fact, he should have made the top of David's list of mighty men, uh, but he did not, did not make it because he was a violent, double-minded man. We see that throughout the rest of 2 Samuel. He's not fully devoted to the work of God, and he is seeking vengeance himself at all costs at every point. Now, in 2 Samuel 2, where we we should pick up, but we skip, we find that Abner led team Saul against 
Team Joab or Team David, and da- Team David routed them in 2 Samuel 2. And it was so bad that, that Abner is running for his life. And as he's running from his life, he looks back and he sees Asahel, who is Joab's brother. Now, this is a fascinating scene if you read it. But as he's running, he's, I guess, talking back to Asahel, Abner is, and he's saying, please stop running after me or I'll have to kill you. And this guy's quick and he keeps coming. He's like, no, I'm serious. I'm not scared of you, but your brother Joab is a bad dude and I don't want to mess with you. But he keeps following him and he ends up dying. And as a result, we find that Abner has killed Asahel, but he does it in war. And so if he was to go to any Levitical court, he probably would have been found innocent of killing him. But it signaled a blood feud for Abner and his brother Abishai, or rather Joab and his brother Abishai, for killing Asahel. Now that sets the backdrop of this this story that's happening between the house of David and the house of Saul. There's also this blood feud that's going on in the middle of our text this morning. Now, 2 Samuel 3.1 tells us what I think the, the main point of these two chapters is, that David, you'll notice, he grew stronger and stronger as the house of Saul, Ishabeth, um, grew weaker and weaker. In fact, we find now that David is safe in Hebron. He gives birth to six sons with six different women. Now, we'll talk about David's many wives on another day, okay? You'll just have to hang in for that. But for now, just take note that each of these wives represents a kind of political alliance and power, and each of these children, they represent a legacy of sons that will come after him. In fact, if you think about it, King Saul had three sons that are mentioned. David has six right off the the bat, and he's not even done yet. And so David is seen as a great king who is growing in, in power. Now, what we find here is that in the midst of this, a long war between David's house and Saul's ensues. Now, the big thing that we're going to see this morning, the big idea, if you're writing notes, you can write this down, is that God unites his people around his increasingly strong yet gentle king. Let me say that again. Our big idea is this, that God unites his people around his increasingly strong yet gentle king. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Now, first, you'll notice that the kingmaker made himself strong in verses 6 to 11. The kingmaker made himself strong in verses 6 to 11. Now, David grew stronger and stronger. Verse 6 tells us, as that was happening, there was something else happening in the house of Saul. Abner was making himself strong in Saul's house. He's the power behind the crown. King Ishbosheth charges him with sleeping with Saul's concubine Ritzbah in verse 7. You might be thinking, what, what does that mean? Why is that seen as such a big deal? It seems like these guys are doing all kinds of wicked stuff all over the place. Well, I think there's something more significant that's happening here. If that happened, that would likely signal a major political move where this man, Abner, would be actually acting as a king and maybe even claiming to be a king, not just the king maker. Now, we don't really know from this text if Abner did it or not. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but that's not really what seems to be significant here. What's significant is the way that he responds whenever Ishbosheth challenges him. And look what he says in verses 8 to 10. Here's Abner's response to him. He says this. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? 
To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God, do so to Abner and more also. If I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Did you catch that? Very interesting statement, I think, that tells us a lot about the nature of the heart of this kingmaker. See, Abner suffers from an inflated view of himself. I think that's what we see here. He sees himself as great. He, He is very great in his eyes, and God seems to be very small. The promises of God and fulfilling those, those are secondary to the anger of the moment. See, Abner says, all I've done is serve your house faithfully. Day after day, I go to work and you reap the benefits. And the only thing protecting you, Ishbosheth, from David is who? Manyata, me. Nobody else. And you blame me for taking the king's woman? And who even cares if it's true? Maybe, I don't know. But who are you to question me? Do you know who I am? Who, who are you as king to judge me? I mean, do you hear the irony of that statement? Who is the king to actually ask me a question? I don't know how your parenting goes in your home, but in our home, uh, our kids, uh, it's not a normal thing and an acceptable thing for them to come and say, Dad, I know that you asked me about something, but who are you to ask me that? Right? Or what about at work? Does that work well at work? Your boss comes to you and says, hey, I need to know, what were you doing here? This doesn't make sense. And you say, it's a good question, but who are you to ask me that? That doesn't go well, right? Well, that's the same kind of foolery that we see here. Who is this kingmaker to actually intimidate the king and ask him uh, whether or not he has the right to ask him a question? Tell you what, Mr. Boshez says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn he would do for him, and I will hand the whole kingdom from Dan to Beersheba over to him with a nice little bow on top. See, I'm going to build David his throne just like I built you a throne. He has a low view of God. And you could see that Abner exaggerates his strength too. In fact, he says, I'm going to give you from Dan to Beersheba. Hey, did you know that like, David already has Beersheba? And so he's expanding his influence and saying, look how great I am. And isn't that kind of the way that our hearts tend to work? Don't we tend to sort of like overgrasp like our influence and our importance and we think much more of ourselves in our heads than we think of others, much less of others than we think of ourselves. And that's exactly the kind of thing that we have here with Abner on display. Now, How can he give David what David already has? Well, the author of Samuel wants us to see that Abner sees himself is great and God is small. You see this throughout. Abner's not super concerned with the promises of God. Remember, he's already known that God swore this to David, but what he's concerned about is which king offers him the best benefits. He's not concerned with building the house of Saul. He's building his own house in the house of Saul. He's kind of into the duplex, you know what I'm saying? He's like, yeah, I like this house as long as I can build my house inside this house, and it helps me make my house better. And Abner's concerned with building his own house. And did you catch Ishbosheth's response to Abner in verse 11? Here's the king coming back to his commander. It says that he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Don't miss this. Neither Abner nor Ishbosheth feared Yahweh. 
Did you catch that? Both of them fear something other than Yahweh. Neither of them fears Yahweh, the Lord. And both of them look drastically different for the fact that God is invisible before their eyes. See, both rejected God's king because they rejected God. It made Abner exaggerate his strength, and Ishbosheth looks so weak. Do you see it? One is like flexing, and the other is cowering, and both responses are because they do not see Yahweh. See, I think that when God disappears or looks small before your eyes, it can look way different in a lot of different ways in the way that you respond and live your everyday life. And none of them are meaningful or flourishing in the way that God has created you to live. You live your best life when Jesus is king. They had lost sight of God's Messiah. See, a lack of confidence in God and inflated confidence in self results in these men's lives. The result of man being great and God being small in your life, it can take on all kinds of manifestations that are less than the humanity that we were made for. But second, notice this. David, David, catch his response to this man who has been an enemy, Abner, to him in verses 12, 25. We find that David prepared a feast for his enemy. As Abner is going to come to David, he is going to prepare a feast for his enemy. The, the kingmaker does what he says he's going to do. He goes to David and he promises to make David king. Now, we don't have much time to linger here, but Abner, he goes straight to David and promises to hand him the kingdom if David would just make a covenant with him. If he made a covenant, uh, he's seen David make covenants and keep his promises. Uh, he's seen it for decades. Like, this is a guy who keeps his word. If he makes a covenant with him, then he's going to hand him the kingdom. And notice verse 12 shows that Abner still thinks a lot of himself. He's still talking a really big bang. Did you notice what he says there? Verse 12, he says, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all of Israel to you. You remember God promised to do this? I'll do it. I can do it. I've got the power. I've got the influence. See, Abner speaks as though he is king. I mean, what kind of second fiddle or vice president can make this kind of power move? This, this man sees himself as king in his own eyes. David agrees to terms if Abner will simply bring Michal to him. Do you remember Michal? That's Saul's daughter that David went out and uh, he took a, a number of foreskins of the Philistines to, as a bridal price because Saul had asked for them. And so she was given to his wife. And Saul took, took his wife, Michal, from him later and gave him to another man, Paltiel. And David says, hey, I just want my wife back. If you bring her back to me, then it'll seal the deal. So David, here, remember, he's growing stronger and stronger. See, having Saul's daughter as a wife would go a long way in uniting the kingdom of God and that he had promised, as he had promised to do with David. And so, Michal means a, it signals a, a stronger political positioning for David. So Abner agreed and David sent messengers to Ishbosheth demanding his wife in verse 15. And Ishbosheth says, Okay. That's what Ishbosheth kind of always does. Yes, sir. Doesn't sound like a king. He, he just hands his sister over as her husband weeps behind her. Now, Levitical law said that you can't take back a wife once you've divorced her. But there's no wrong that's given to David here. It seems like David assumes that he never divorced her. And that he still has a right to her. 
And so he sees her as his wife and takes her. Now Abner proceeds to convince Israel and his tribe Benjamin to come over to Team David. Now don't forget this. Abner has pursued David and his life for decades. He's led the charge. He likely saw and heard of Saul's plans to murder David. He probably saw David narrowly escape time after time. And how does David receive him in verse 20, this man who has constantly sought his life? Verse 20 says this. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Just a window into the nature of David, this king, this Messiah. See, David welcomed his enemy with open arms. He prepared a feast, and a feast for his, his whole army, his enemies. And what a picture of foreshadowing of the forgiveness that we have in Christ with God. I mean, David is just a picture of the greater Christ to come, Jesus and he came and dined with sinners. Jesus did. He lived with them so much that many were asking, why is Jesus hanging with people like this? And yet he lived with them, ate with them, taught with them, died for them, defeated sin, death, and the devil through his death on the cross for them and was raised as the victorious king to deliver all those who repent and believe from the just wrath of God so that amongst other things, hang with me, we might join him at the marriage feast of the Lamb on the last day. Do you catch that? Part of the promise of the gospel is an amazing party. And that's exactly the thing that we see here in David. He is showing that he is welcoming this man to his table as not an enemy, but as a friend. Same kind of picture I think we see of Revelation 19.7-9, where we as enemies who have been washed in the blood of Christ are invited to come to the marriage feast of the land and join in heavenly celebration with Christ our King. See, families, they don't get to eat much together anymore. I don't know about you guys. Maybe you all eat out a lot. You don't eat as a family much anymore. And you kind of forget about the significance of what it means to invite someone into your home and eat your food. You know what I'm talking about? Like, that's a big deal. Um, and, and it's a bigger deal when people like actually are sacrificial and, and loving in the way that they make the food and they make good food, right? I mean, any food's good. You don't have to like, let me just pull back. I want y'all to be hospitable, and if you need to use, like, leftover chicken nuggets, that's fine. We'll work it out. But you know how it is when somebody, like, actually says, you know what, we, we made steaks tonight. You're like, you made steaks? Man, I'm supposed to be here, right? And that's exactly the kind of thing that, that we find in this text, and that's exactly the kind of picture that we find here. A feast signals that you're supposed to be here. We want you here. See, our family, the Vincents, we place a high value on being, being together for meals. Because a meal says you're accepted. We have peace. You're in a safe place. And a feast signals shalom in the home. Like we, we can just sit and chill for a little bit. We can love one another. We can enjoy one another. We don't have to run right now during this space. We get to just enjoy what God has done. So if you're wondering where the story of human history is going, one day all of those who turn from serving all of the false kings of this world to serve God's King Jesus, they're going to be invited to eat with Jesus at the marriage feast of the innocent, gentle lamb who paid for your meal with his own blood. It's going to be a good feast. And that's how you got a seat at God's table. God's lamb gave God's life 
so that you might sit and dine with him forever. The lamb paid with his life. That's the only one anyway get, anybody gets in, as if, as if the lamb paid for their ticket. See, we were all rebels, and so once was Abner, and so once were his men. And on this day, they eat to the full with God's Messiah. That's a good day. Notice verse 21 says this. David says, I will gather, he says, after this meal, Abner says to David, I will gather all Israel to my Lord the King, that they may make a covenant with you, and you may reign over all your heart desires. This is what Abner has done. Now, the irony is clear. Abner trusted in his political savviness to make himself strong. Pride comes before the fall, doesn't it? Uh, As a kid, my mom, I don't know how you got disciplined, but she used to chase me down with the Bible. And uh, when she wasn't smacking me with it, she was reading it to me. I'm joking. She didn't hit me with her Bible. Um, but she, she usually had like a really small arsenal of texts that she felt like I needed specifically. And, and one of those was from Proverbs 16, 18, where she said, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. I can't tell you how many times I heard that, voice, that verse. I can't tell you how many times still today I can hear my mom's voice reading that scripture in my ears. Knowing that I struggle with pride, notice, noting that pride comes before destruction. And I can't tell you how many times in real time I saw my life experience destruction because of pride. And I was like, man, mom's right. The Bible's right. Well, here we find Abner experiencing this in real time. His pride, his hubris, it came before his mighty fall. In fact, we find that he, he dies like this same day. One day he thinks he's going to be next to the great king that has been promised all of the nations. And the next moment, he's planning a funeral. I think this is a message for all of us as we look at Abner. You know, husbands, as we look at Abner, we should see ourselves. Let me just encourage you. If you're a husband, be careful when your marriage is in a good place. When you think it's in a good spot. Be careful that you don't forget that you are desperately in need of washing both yourself and your wife in God's word and desperately in need of training your kids to walk in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You know how easy it is on vacation just to like get chill and think, I think this is going to last forever and forget the word of God. Forget your desperation for Jesus on vacation. And yet you get in the car and you take a trip and everybody's screaming and you're reminded of your need of Jesus really quickly, right? Be careful about what you look at on your computer. When you're thinking to yourself, no one sees what my eyes see right now. And you think if I get away with it and I hide it and I cover my trail enough and nobody ever knows, then there are no consequences and there's no justice and no one sees and Jesus sees. Jesus sees all things. Now maybe in the pride of your heart, you're thinking God's not going to ever bring justice. He always brings justice. Maybe you're cocky over your achievements at work and you think to yourself man look how good I'm doing and maybe you get pretty cocky at the workplace you ever been that guy's like look at that deal I just got you see what I did and the next thing you know something goes wrong and you don't want to say did you see what I did right the Lord's bringing humility to your life pride always goes before 
the fall. Maybe you're single and dating and you're thinking to yourself that you can skimp on faithfulness to Jesus in your relationship and that, you know, soon if we get married, it's all going to get covered up. Not a big deal. And yet we know that God is always just and he always sees. And I want you to remember with Abner that you can go from being a kingmaker in a day to planning a funeral that night. That's the nature of what the fall looks like. God, he always sees. He always plans. He always brings about justice. But don't miss this. God is also good. And God is patient. And God is just. And God created us for his glory. And even more, don't miss this. Not living for God's glory above our glory, it actually diminishes the glory that we were made for. So so what I'm saying today is don't, don't like, Settle for lesser glories because you might get punished. I'm saying don't, less, don't settle for lesser glories because you were made for much more glory than that. You were made for the glory of God. And it's not safe. It's not safe not to live what you were made for, the glory of God. We were made for so much more than enjoying our own glory and our names be made great in and of ourselves. We were made to make much of the name of Christ. We were made for the glory of an infinite God eternally, not the glory of finite man whose life can disappear in a day. Third, notice what we find in Joab. Joab is violent and David is gentle. Joab is violent and David is gentle. Joab is David's chief commander. The next verses tell us Abner left in peace three times in in different ways. It's highlighting that, that peace was the situation when Joab shows up. Peace had been brought to the Middle East, and yet Joab shows up. It's interesting that as you read there in verses 26 to 39, it almost feels like Just as Joab is pulling in, we find Abner pulling out. They don't see each other. And so they begin to tell Joab what's going on. And when he hears, he's not having it. He has this blood feud because he had killed his brother in war. And Joab, he he seems to be fully devoted to David. But sometimes, sometimes he killed people when David didn't want him to. That happens throughout. He's kind of a bad guy. You know, you never want a friend that like, you know, sometimes accidentally or out of anger just kills people. You don't being killed. But that's Joab. See, David wanted forgiveness as the king. He wanted reconciliation. He wanted peace. But Joab wanted blood. See, Joab, he goes around David's back and kills Abner by stabbing him in the stomach, a theme that we see throughout. And it seems like his brother Abishai and others helped him. They're guilty of innocent blood against Levitical law. David sought peace. Joab sought war. Joab did not fear God. Joab looks a lot like Abner. He doesn't just trust himself. He trusts his sword. Now, Joab's fighting almost compromised the peace David ushered in. And Samuel, he wants us, as he writes, to to revel in this letter, to revel in the God who saves without sword or spear. That's what what this, this book is really trying to show us. That God is the one who brings victory. Not the, not the weapons of humanity, but the goodness of God is what saves. Now catch how David responds as a representative of his, his God. He does this in four ways, four responses. Uh, notice first that David curses Joab according to the Torah, to God's law. He does that in verses 28 to 29. So David causes or curses Joab's house. Uh, look there what he says. It's a pretty harsh curse, but he says these things. He says, Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Verse 29, may it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all of his father's house. 
And may the house of Joab never be without one who is discharged, or who is leprous, or who holds a spindle, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. And so he cursed him, his chief commander, for this action. And Joab killing what may be perceived as an enemy at that. But David is a covenant keeper, and he's made a covenant with Abner. So David is actually cursing Joab and Abishai and their house for the blood, clit, the blood guilt, claiming innocence for himself as king and his people. These curses that are listed here are straight out of the law. Now you might be thinking to yourself, why does David do this? Well, it's because the good king fears God. He keeps God's law. He obeys God. He instructs his people in righteousness because he fears Yahweh. He has a respect and awe for Yahweh. But not only that, notice second that David mourns Abner in verses 31 to 32. See, David then orders Joab and his whole crew, whoever was involved, he says, I want you to tear your clothes and I want you to get ready to mourn because we're about to have a funeral and as they lead the body of Abner towards his grave, you're going to be following behind weeping and mourning. Let's go. Start weeping. Now you can imagine that Joab is pretty ticked at this point. Like, he doesn't have any sad feelings. I mean, maybe tears of joy, but not tears of sadness for this guy. And yet he obeys the king. And they follow behind, mourning the death of Abner, publicly honoring him in the shameful death that Joab brought about. In fact, David sings a lament over Abner. You remember David's a musician, and he's already sung one lament in chapter 1 over Jonathan and Saul. And here he, he writes one for Abner. See, this had to be an awkward moment for Joab. Now the king's singing about this guy. He's getting more honor in death than he got in life. And David says in his lament, should Abner die as a fool dies? That was like Nabal, but not this guy. He's a good warrior. Your hands were not bound. I didn't bind you. This wasn't an act of the state. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And I can imagine David looking at Joab at this point. Because who is the wicked? It's Joab. And he's there fake mourning in front of this guy. See, Joab is the wicked man who killed Abner. But fourth, notice that David fasted for the whole day in verse 35. You know, so much of this sounds like how David was responding to Saul and Jonathan, that man that he, Jonathan, the one that he loved uh, even more than the love of a woman. But did you catch how the people responded in verse 36? It says, and all the people took notice of it. All the people, Israel and Judah, everyone there, they're taking notice of the way that this king is responding to this death. They're learning as they're watching him. They're saying, what does this tell us about this king? He's different. And catch what it says in verse 36. And it pleased them. It pleased them to see a king with a heart like this. And then it goes on to say, it's everything that the king did pleased all the people. This was a good king. This is not like Saul. This is not like scary, crazy Saul. This is a good king who seeks to bring justice and order and is fair. You know, David first notes that here in these verses, we find the first time that the author of this book actually refers to David as king. He does it himself for the first time. He's, he's been called king, referred to as king by others or quotes, but here the author calls him king, and he continually does so five more times in the verses that follow. Now, this is the moment where David becomes king, leading his people in mourning the death of a national hero. 
bringing the nation together. Israel and Judah recognized together David as their king. A couple of things are interesting here. First, did you notice that David doesn't kill Joab? Seems kind of like the thing that's happening these days. But he doesn't kill Joab. In fact, he doesn't kill Joab ever. Until Second or First Kings 2, we find that David actually leaves that to Solomon. And this is one of the things that he lists. He's so tough to others, but shows mercy to Joab. And Joab keeps being Joab throughout the rest of the book. I think this really foreshadows Joab's, Joab's future actions and where they lead. See, David doesn't actually ever deal with Joab, but he gets dealt with. But there's a second thing I think that's striking about this section here. Joab acts as a foil for the character that drew people to David. Did you see that? All the people were pleased by David. Why? Well, look at verse 39. I think that that explains. It, It says, And I was gentle today, this is David, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruah, being the the guys who just killed uh, Abner, Joab and Abishai, these guys, their sons, are more severe than I. They're hard. I'm gentle. And the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. See, Joab is violent, but David is not. David is gentle. The spirit, catch this, it's beautiful. The spirit that empowered David to be king empowered him to be a gentle king. Do you see it? Now, that's important. Like some of us think gentle is weak. Here we see a king who is empowered by the omnipotent Holy Spirit to be gentle over his people. You know, I think a lot of times it's kind of easy to be rash and harsh. It takes power to be gentle. David had supernatural power to be gentle in the chaos that was his life at this time. See, gentle and weak are two very different things. David was gentle and brazen, gentle and strong. But his confidence was not in a slingshot or his political alliances. It was in his God. He did not seek to take power with sword and spear, but in the power of the Lord and in obedience to his word. That was the strength of David. He was righteous, innocent, a gentle king, but he was fierce too. He also fought giants. Now, if you mistake gentle for weak, chapter 4 is not going to make a lot of sense. See, fourth, David doesn't overlook sin in 2 Samuel 4. Now, this story concludes <clears throat> with the death of Ishbosheth, the puppet king. Now, you'll remember that he trusted Abner to make him king, even against God's promise to David. And Abner died before he was able to hand the kingdom to David. Uh, Benah and Rechab were actually commanders under Abner. So they were like sort of vice commanders. And when they hear that Abner's dead, they say, you know what? This sounds like a good opportunity maybe to like switch teams. This isn't going well. And maybe we could even like work in a promotion here. Here's the deal. Let's just go in and kill Ishbosheth. And they do. They, they sneak into his house. They stab him in the stomach. Sound familiar? They cut off his head. Sound familiar? And then they carry the head all the way to King David without anybody noticing. And we find that as they come up to, to David, they approach him, expecting a reward for avenging the king against Saul and his offspring. I guess they hadn't heard about what David did to the Amalekite in chapter 1. But David responds to them in verse 9. 
And here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 9. This is what David says to these men who have brought them the head of Ishbosheth. He says this As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, I didn't have to lift a spear or a sword. When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, maybe you haven't heard this story, I think you'll know where it's going. I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. Now I'm thinking at that time they're like recalculating. This might not work out the same as we thought. And he goes on to say, verse 11, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, the place that David has come to bring peace to, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the face of the earth. I don't think that was exactly what they were looking for when they killed Ishbosheth. Now, I want to ask you this question, though. Does David look weak here? No. David looks fierce. But did you catch why he's fierce? They are guilty before God of blood guilt, and his kingdom will not be characterized by people biting and devouring and killing one another for selfish gain. The, the, the kingdom should be characterized by self-sacrificial love and submission to the king. See, David did not overlook their sins or let blood guilt remain. David did not need to take the crown by sword or spear. God would raise him up, and God would empower his gentle king, this gentle king, to dispel the wall of hostility that existed between Israel and Judah to create one new man and peace in the kingdom of God. David trusted God to do it. See, this section began with Ishbosheth and Abner conspiring to kill God's king. And did you notice that it ends with the two being buried together? That was the end of them trying to reject God's king. Both fell as David loved and strummed his lyre and sang, but never lifted sword or spear. That like actually rhymed. I didn't even realize that when I wrote it. But that's exactly what David's doing all the while. He's trusting God to do what God has said he's going to do. And he watches one by one as God fulfills his promises. And God would empower him to do so, and he trusted it. See, this section, it, it shows us the power of God. God brought about the victory, and God got all of the glory, and that is the purpose of God, to show his people his goodness and make much of his name amongst them. Now, I wish I had a lot of time to talk about politics here. I don't really like talking about politics much. I know some of you guys do. But I think it is helpful to note, to take note, that if you're serving in politics, you might feel like you are trapped in the chaos and wonder if you're doing any good. And I think your testimony in those places is a huge benefit to the kingdom of God. You're being a witness and things are happening when you don't even see it. You don't even know what the Lord's doing with your testimony and with the way that you're influencing but ultimately, our hope is not in your influence. Our hope is in our God. God is going to bring about his purposes. Don't you know, I mean, if you worked in politics, you know that everything can change in a moment. One vote can change your life, can change the life of a lot of people. In the same way, God in a moment can change history in such a way that everything becomes new. He did it at the cross, and he's going to do it again when he comes back. And I think he still does that between now and then. See, David here, he is a Christ a spirit-anointed king, a Messiah, who points to a greater Christ, Jesus. And the gospel creates a profound unity, not just between Israel and Judah, but between Jews and Gentiles. 
It is a worldwide program that God's involved in in redeeming humanity to himself. And those inside and outside the covenant are being made into one new man. See, just like David was uniting Israel and Judah, Jesus came to bring about a people that has people from every tribe, tongue, and nation for the glory of his name. Jesus came to calm not just the enmity that we had with the enmity that we had with God, but our hostility with one another. I love what Ephesians 2, 12 to 16 says. He says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, from God's king. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. And with God in the world, that was me. That was you. You were hopeless even if you didn't know it. But now, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, further than you knew, have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. And for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, therefore, through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. You see it? The gospel. The gospel is a story about God restoring us to relationship with him, but also giving us the power that we need to have peace with others. I don't know about you. I have lots of relationships that I feel like constantly need peace. Peace from on high with others. That is something that is made available to the people of God. See, Joab killed because of a blood feud. He just couldn't let something go. He was for David, but his heart did not change, and neither did his actions. He was still a murderer, one who sought vengeance on his own. He did not see the Lord as his avenger. He was his own avenger. He lived under the king and under the curse of the law. I mean, think about that. Day by day, Joab knew that he was serving a king who cursed him. Talk about a hopeless day. Think about that. Horizontal hostility led to killing and vertical hostility, a curse from God. That's where Joab lived day by day. But here, Ephesians 2, Jesus came down. See, our hostility worked up to enmity with God. But here we find that something great has happened. Jesus came down. Our great king came down. And he led us to have peace with God so that we could have peace with others. That's the hope that we have of peace with others. It's that God has come down. Think about that. Horizontal forgiveness has come from a vertical forgiveness. Jesus came down to make peace, not by taking life, but by giving his life as a ransom for all who would believe. I think Joab could have used the same gospel that Jesus preached to Peter in Matthew. Do you remember that? Matthew 26, 52, as the soldiers came to take Jesus away with what? Swords? What does Peter do? Peter says, I got this. I got a sword, I'm ready to fight, let's take the kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Put your sword back into its place. Why? For all who take by the sword will perish by the sword. It's not the kingdom of Jesus. How many times did Jesus tell him, Peter, that he had to go to the cross and as, as an innocent, gentle, sacrificial lamb for our sins? And how many times did Peter say, I'll never let it happen? And Jesus says, your greatest fear is your greatest hope. If I don't go to the cross, you don't live. Of course, then he was raised from the dead in unparalleled power to declare himself king of kings and lord of lords. Praise God that we serve a king who is both tender and tough. 
that he is gentle and strong. Now, being fierce for God, I believe, means being gentle towards others. Christians look like they're Christ. We look like Jesus in our gentleness. That means that we need to be strong enough to be gentle in this chaotic world. Does that make sense? We, we know that gentleness really takes strength. Are y'all with me? Like, is anybody here going like, no, gentle comes naturally. It's not hard. Like, I love it when people are like jerks to me and then I'm just like, I'm just gentle. It oozes out. That's not me. I, maybe it's you. Praise God. I'd love to like walk alongside you and see how that works. But I think we know that we need the strength of the Lord for gentleness. So let me just give you a few words in gentleness as we close. First, Jesus is gentle. He's gentle. You have a gentle Savior. He is omnipotent and gentle. Uh, notice in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? I'm gentle. I'm lowly of heart. I'm humble. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He came to take on the burden of our guilt before God. How do we come before a king when we are living under the curse? Jesus came to lift us out of the curse. That's the burden of guilt and the law that he carried us from. But not only that, second, we need the spirit of Christ to make us gentle. It's not just hard to be gentle and you don't just need to be strong. I think it's actually impossible to be gentle without God. See, we are too weak to be gentle on our own. That's why Galatians 5.23 says that gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. If something is a fruit of the Spirit, that means that we need the Spirit to get it, and that means that we don't have it left to ourselves. So if you are thinking to yourself, I need to be more gentle, and so tomorrow I'm going to practice gentleness all by my lonesome, because I can do it, because I'm a powerful person, and I make kings. Well, Abner has a lesson on that. But if you want to wake up tomorrow morning and you want to say, Lord, I just know that desperately I need to be gentle because I'm not left to myself, because I'm not really trusting that you are the strong Savior that you are and that my hope is fully in you. And I'm starting to not be gentle because I feel like I have to fight for what I get. And I can't trust that you have given me more than I can ever imagine. That's the message of the gospel. We need the fruit of the Spirit. We need to ask him, I can't be gentle if your Spirit does not help me be the human that you have created me to be. Left to myself, I am angry. I love what James 3, 13 to 18 says, so clear. He says this, jealousy is opposed or sort of the opposite of gentleness in those verses, it seems. And jealousy, he says, is demonic. It's a spiritual thing that we are not gentle as we should be. It's a, it's a, it's a spiritual war. But he says gentleness is wisdom from above. So we need the power from above and the wisdom from above to be able to love others here in our daily lives. 1 Peter 3.15 says, be gentle with your enemies. Anybody just like really good at being gentle with your enemies? Can I, hands? See one in the back? Just kidding, made you look. There's, there's no, like it's hard. It's hard. Like I need constantly to pray to God, like help me be gentle. I have to pray for gentleness with my kids who I love more than anybody, with my wife who is beautiful and amazing. I have to do it with you guys who, there's nobody smarter or like better congregation than you guys. But I, I sometimes need to ask for God's help to be gentle. Do you, do you need to ask for help in being gentle? So what do we do if we need gentleness? If it's a fruit of the Spirit, we need to pray for it. We need to seek God's face. We need to be desperate to be gentle like Jesus is. I think it also means that we need to seek to live a holy life so we can be gentle. You know, sometimes you think like, man, I can just like be disobedient to God. And um, if nobody finds out, we're fine. But you don't realize that you're becoming harsh and angry. And the reason you're harsh and angry is because you're not walking in the spirit. You're not seeking to be faithful. And you're finding that all of a sudden you don't love people as you ought to because you're not trusting Jesus as you should. When we lose sight 
of the greatness and the goodness and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, which we need to be reminded of every day and daily and and multiple times, we will become harsh. If you're leaving in sin, gentleness will erode and you will start sharpening that sword. But the more that you see you have peace with God in Christ, the more that you will see that you can trust God to bring bring about his purposes as you seek to be faithful. You don't have to be the king anymore. Third, we need to be gentle and brave when we help brothers and sisters in Christ who are falling into sin. This is what the New Testament tells us about gentleness. We need to be gentle when we're helping those who are falling into sin. Uh, it, it, when I'm falling in sin, I don't need somebody to come slap me upside the head. Like, maybe I do sometimes if I'm not repenting. But, like, it, it'd be nice just to have a gentle somebody come alongside and say, Hey, did you know you're sinning? Can I help you? Can I lead you out of this? Uh, that's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 6.1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. But he doesn't stop there. He says, in a spirit of gentleness. And by the way, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And you know, we're trying to help those who are fallen in sin. And you know, maybe that's someday me. Maybe that's someday you. Maybe we're all like constantly running from sin and need help. Like, as we're doing that, we need to be reminded that we need to have a spirit of gentleness. But not only that, we need to, as we're being gentle, be humble and realize that we too could be in that same spot if not for the grace of God. Fourth, elders need to be gentle. Elders need to be gentle. Here's what Paul tells Timothy. He says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. Elders are called to be gentle. You know, we are seeking constantly to be gentle. And I'll be honest with you, we are humans and we are men. And we are looking constantly to be gentle and to love you well. And sometimes you might have to say like, hey, that felt hard. And, and sometimes we might have to repent. And sometimes we might have to say, you're in more danger than you know. But we are always seeking to be gentle like Jesus is gentle. He has been so gentle with us. Elders ought to look like Jesus in this. And finally, fifth, wives. Be gentle. All Christians should be gentle, but specifically wives are called to be gentle. And I say it in this way, because women are called not to adorn themselves with external things like the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry. Now, if you're wearing gold jewelry and you dress nice today, like we're grateful for that. We're not complaining. But the emphasis is not to be all on the external. But instead, he goes on to say in verse 25, I mean, he goes on to say, Uh, But in verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You know, we have some women in this congregation, so many women, who I believe are gentle and have backbones of steel. And I want to just continue to encourage you in that. Be gentle and don't waver on the word of God. Be sweet and kind as it reflects the power of the cross but also don't waver on the need for the gospel. And I believe that's exactly what God's calling us to. And he says, this is what is beauty, beauty in the sight of God. So let's be tender and tough, gentle and brazen. This only happens when we know who the true king is. Let me pray with you.